Today's episode is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. By 2050, there may be 1 billion electric vehicles on the road worldwide, bringing opportunities and challenges to automakers and the supply chain. Under that scenario, as much as 90% of all new vehicle sales would be electric. The effects of this shift will be dramatic for automakers, but they will be far from the only industry disrupted. Read more at morganstanley.com electric. Morgan Stanley & Co., LLC, member SIPC. Opening bell in about 20 seconds. Let me just set the stage for you. Money, money, I want more money. You cannot have it all. This whole system is too confusing. Hi, I'm Ben White, and this is Politico Money. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politico Money Podcast. So glad you could be with us. It's a very special edition to me today. We travel to the Upper East Side apartment of Larry Kudlow, who's a major figure in Republican economic circles. He's currently an outside advisor to President Trump in the White House, uh, helping to design the tax cut plan that's now working its way through Congress. He was a senior advisor to President Reagan in the 1980s, helped design Reagan's tax cut packages. We go into both Larry's history, his politics, as well as the GOP tax plan and what uh, critics say are problems with it, and he'll defend most, but not all of it. And then we also talk to Larry about his own personal experience with addiction uh, and his recovery. Uh, And that section gets very personal to me, and I share some of my own experiences. uh, So I hope you'll take something away from listening to that. And if you're enjoying Politico Money, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Uh, Write us a review and uh, rate us with some stars. Always love the five stars, but you know, we'll take what we can get. Uh, And do like getting your feedback, trying to incorporate it into the show to get both deep into the weeds on policy, as well as introduce you to some of the big players in economic circles and tell a little bit of the larger narrative while giving an insight into who these people are and how they got where they uh, are today. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Larry Kudlow. All right. Uh, Thank you to Larry Kudlow, the great Larry Kudlow, for joining us, a longtime uh, friend and colleague of mine at CNBC and elsewhere, uh, kind enough to host us in his Upper East Side apartment. I want to start on taxes just for a second. I saw a quote from Bob Corker uh, on CNBC this morning, and he said of the tax plan that Republicans are trying to push through Congress, he said, you could take the entire individual portion of this bill, throw it in the trash can and take it directly to the incinerator. I would be thrilled. Now, this <laughs> this is a Republican that uh, the White House really needs to sign on to its uh, tax reform plan. They can't lose more than two in the Senate. So um, and I've always sort of believed, Larry, and you may disagree with me on this, that the whole tax cut push starts from a place of a very good idea, which is take our terrible corporate tax system, which has a high statutory rate, but takes in very little revenue, uh, junk it, get rid of it, get a lower rate that people actually pay. And then they went and they added an individual side to this, which uh, you know in the first year raises taxes on some people, over the long term raises taxes on a lot of people. Uh, and it's just kind of a mess. So my question to you is just, is this a good kind of corporate tax effort married to a really crummy individual tax cut plan? <laughs> well, I will say this. Um, my friend Bob Corker, who I've known for many years and helped out from time to time, 
Uh, this one time, he has the story pretty much correct. <laughs> the only time. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say the only, but this one he really nailed. I mean, look, the, 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 the tax planning and the tax uh, policy discussions going way back in the Trump campaign, going back to, I don't know, late 2015 is probably, really was focused on the most pressing need which was the business tax system, which, as you noted, was a mess. Uh, my buddy Steve Moore and I, and others who worked on this thing in the campaign, Stephen Mnuchin, uh, Steve Miller, in the, in the background, uh, Art Laffer, um, we just wanted slash the corporate tax rate to 15%, immediate full expensing of new equipment, and repatriation with a very small uh, toll gate. That was the three, and we call that to, to this day three easy pieces. We felt you could get that. And we wound up tossing in a doubling of the standard deduction, which we figured was a political move, not really a policy growth move that was for politics. But many people would have been, would have been helped by that toward in the lower end of the income. Uh, so that that's really all we wanted. And it's funny. I remember seeing the president last time I was there was maybe two months ago, I don't know, six, seven weeks ago, whatever. And saying that, you know, I still believe, sir, that a skinny tax cut based on business and sold messaged properly that lower business tax rates would increase wages um, was the best bet. And it was middle income. It wasn't aimed at rich people, even though I have no problem with rich people. I would like to have lots more rich people, and I'd like to have the non-rich become rich. At that moment, I felt the coalition could be developed, maybe even with some Democrats. And another important cabinet person was in that meeting and felt that we could do the bigger package with individuals. You know, you go back and look at that again, we essentially didn't have an individual tax cut. What we did was we talked about it, but we decided to punt it over to Kevin Brady. And the Ways and Means had a, um, had a pretty good outline at that point. And that decision was made in the summer of 2016. Just put it out there. So when the president spoke at the Detroit Economics Club and the New York Economics Club in the late summer, we essentially had given the individual side to Kevin Brady. The business side is what the president wanted. It's what we all felt. We, Incidentally, these were not political decisions. We just felt from an economic growth standpoint, that's where the big bang would come from. And I, surprisingly, the business side has not changed from what Steve Moore and I and others put together. Just to get back to the broad philosophical question about um – you know, the extent to which they've added individual tax cuts to this. And that's opened up a whole can of worms and allowed Democrats to say, you know, well, you've got some tax hikes right away on people in high tax states that lose their deductions. And then these things are temporary where the business tax cuts are permanent. And it creates this mess. But could they have done the corporate side in a way that didn't lose so much revenue that people like Corker and Flake who worry about the debt and the deficit, that they wouldn't have been upset about it. Like, I mean, the whole idea to me on the individual side is you found basically found pay fors for the corporate side, um, which I guess to some seems a little perverse to do it that way. Look, the mother of all pay fors is 3% economic growth. You run these numbers, even run the CBO technical model. And at 3% growth, 
compared to their, I think their baseline was one eight or one nine, you're going to pick up $3 trillion over 10 years. Our secondary view was don't do too much. Tar- in other words, I don't, I'm, I'm not in favor of targeting. I'm a free market guy. But, but the sickest part of our tax system is the business side. Now, the worst part of a flawed tax system was the business side because of international competitive reasons and because of um, uh, prohibitively high tax rates. So what you're getting, you know, you look at the numbers on this thing, uh, profits came in, have been coming in rather well uh, over the past, say, 10 years. But the money's gone offshore. And that's really hurt. And it's hurt, not only hurt investment, it's hurt wages. This is, uh, as my friend Kevin Hassett from the CA, and he's correct, he makes this point. The reason wages haven't risen commensurate with, with profits in this cycle is the profits have gone offshore. And that's, I don't believe we've ever seen that before. And that has a lot to do with our um, relatively high tax rates and other problems. So just stay with that. So that was my argument. Stay with that and make it so businesses don't have to move offshore. You, you can't order them. This is not a dictatorship, but you can incentivize them. And incentive is the magic word for supply-siders like us. So that was the thinking. Look, the individual side is um, not the worst thing I've ever seen, but let me just remind, true tax reform, when we talk about this as a tax reform bill, okay, it's not. Yeah. Okay, because when I worked for Reagan, we had two bills, 81 and 86. The 86 bill slashed, let me underscore that and put it in italics, slashed marginal tax rates for individuals. And so you're left with from 50 to 28% on the top. But actually, there are only two rates. I think people forget this. The two rates Reagan left were 28 and 15, okay? Now, you get rates down that low, you don't need deductions. The value of the deductions are nil. And so getting rid of them did not cause a major stir in most cases. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not like that. No. Here, the top, the top rate is probably going to be flat. It might go down and touch. I don't know. But even the middle brackets, uh, reductions of three percentage points. So when you want to end the uh, state and local tax deduction, for example, well, because rates are reasonably high, relatively high, that's going to hurt a lot of different people. Yep. You follow? Yep. So that so the internal logic was not good. This is not a true tax reform bill. It does have a lot of growth in it from the business side. And in that sense, I agree with my friend, uh, Senator Corker. He's yeah. got that right. Okay. I want to give people a little bit of a sense of uh, you know, the arc of your career. And a lot of people, I don't think, know this, that you were a Democrat for a long time. Oh, yes. And Absolutely. you were, uh, as I was reading, in Students for a Democratic Society, uh, worked against the Vietnam War, uh, and I think worked on a Senate campaign in 1970 with Bill Clinton, which Indeed. a lot of people don't know. Absolutely. So, so tell me- It gets um, better. Bill gets Clinton, better, yeah. Michael Medved, who became a hard conservative like myself, um, both Podestas who have been in the news of right. late. Yes, <laughs> and I wouldn't say they're all my best friends, but I still do keep in touch. Yeah. So um, what happened? How did you go from uh, a Democrat who protested the Vietnam War and worked alongside some prominent progressives to a 
acolyte for Ronald Reagan and tax cuts and supply side economics and the idea of uh, trickle down creating growth? Like what was the the moment that uh, that Larry Kudlow saw the light? Incentives, by the way. I don't like trickle down. I know. Having said that, uh, you know, my my democratic protest was over the war. And you want to know the truth? I'm still against the Vietnam War uh, all these years later. Um, In foreign policy, I I always use Jack Kemp's uh, uh, paradigm. Jack used to call himself a um, heavily armed dove. And that's kind of what I've adopted down through the years. But look, on the economic side, um, I went from the University of Rochester to Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School and learned a lot of economics there. I did not get a PhD, but I went through the program and began to see something about free markets. And um, then I went to the Federal Reserve, a bank of New York, and had some greatest... I was in open market operations and bank supervision. I was a secretary to Paul Volcker for a whole bunch of months doing his a lot of his written work. And in those days, the big issue was inflation. You know, we had bouts of double-digit inflation. And so I, um, you know, began to go back and do some reading, um, became very friendly with uh, Bob Mundell, uh, Art Laffer, others, and began to see the arguments on the supply side. Carl Brunner, a famous monetarist, was a, a tutor of mine at Rochester and then later, and uh, Alan Meltzer also. So I had that, and then the the tax cutting came later, which I, I don't know exactly. I mean, it was in the air, and I'm reading the Wall Street Journal editorial page, although the Wall Street Journal editorial page was sort of slow to come around. But nonetheless, began to see the argument that if you're worried about inflation, uh, stop printing excess money and keep a strong eye on the dollar. I've had this view, which includes the value of the dollar against gold and commodities, as well as other exchange rates. I've had that view for so long. If you're worried about economic growth, push the tax lever. And that doesn't, you know, that includes regulations and size of government. But the, that's really the tax lever was the one. Um, and I realized that, you you know, without growth, first of all, people will be very unhappy and pessimistic. We will be weaker abroad. And um, we'll never get the kind of, if you want a balanced budget, I've come to believe down through the years, grow the economy 3 4% a year and try to keep a lid on spending. It's that simple. Um, people who followed your story and know you uh, and have read about you over the years know that you've uh, battled addiction uh, and been in recovery. And I, I don't think a lot of people know this about me necessarily, but I'm comfortable you know, sharing it and, and talking with you that I'm a sober person also. Mm-hmm. God bless. Uh, yeah, God bless. And, and I'm in 12-step recovery. And uh, I put my sobriety above everything else. It's the most important thing in my life because nothing else happens without that. Um, so I feel a kinship to you on, on that. And I uh, talked to me a little bit about your experience with it. I know it took a while. It was difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and took a few, you know, rehab experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, just talk to me about your, um, kind of history with that and what it was like dealing with it and, and trying to get sober. Well, you know, it's the worst times of my life, really. Um, late eighties, early nineties with crash and burn over alcohol and cocaine. And I've never hidden that and yeah. stuff. 
uh, wrecked marriage, wrecked my job, professional reputation, etc. Those are bad days. Sometimes, as you may know, you really have to hit bottom. You have to really sort of, I always looked at it as surrendering. I just had to surrender. (laughs) You beat me. Yep. It's the concept of powerlessness. That's right. And my saintly wife enrolled me in uh, Hazleton out in Minnesota, and I spent five months there plus. And that was a big turning point for a lot of things, not only to stop drinking and using drugs, but um, to learn a different way of living, to um, change myself, to develop a sense of faith, which all of which were lacking, as sometimes I, I kid around in the meetings, I say I am a, a retired master of the universe. Yeah. That that model didn't really work for me. Right. And to this day, you know, it's been 22 years plus, with God's grace. Um, and it changes everything. I wouldn't have had a chance to do any. I mean, look, <clears throat> Ben, my, you know, my career has changed. I mean, the funny thing is, without ever seeing it, all of a sudden... I was a daily and nightly anchor host on Mm -hmm. CNBC TV. That came out of the blue. And I love it. You know, and I I did it for about a dozen years, more than a dozen years. I couldn't do it every night. Now I'm doing it three times a week or so. And the radio show is the same way. I love that radio show. We're in 183 cities across the country. We started with one. But none of this would have been possible. Yeah. None of this if I weren't sober. Honestly, yeah. you're yeah. you're absolutely right. Um, I'm not a proselytizer, but yeah. when it's appropriate, I will talk about yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, I have any problem with it. Yeah, just to talk broadly about the idea of supply side economics and cutting taxes for corporations. Um, you know, the critics of the Reagan tax cuts and later the Bush tax cuts will say that. Um, you know, the, the growth certainly occurred under Reagan, but deficits and debt also went up as they did under the Bush tax cuts. They'll say that, you know, there's no great evidence that these things ever pay for themselves. And they generally wind up increasing the debt and the deficit uh, in ways that, you know, are hurt growth and create higher interest rates and that ultimately have to be cleaned up uh, in some way to, uh, you know, get rid of the debts and deficits that have been incurred under tax cuts. Like, what what is your counter to that argument that supply-side economics just doesn't generally work? Well, look, uh, doesn't generally work. So this is the subject of my book with Brian Dimitrovic. JFK was the first supply-sider. He slashed tax rates across the board. And they had a terrific boom in the 60s. And that boom didn't end until Johnson started raising taxes and Nixon destroyed the value of the dollar. Um, So I'll stand on that. And during the Reagan years, and I would define the Reagan years, frankly, from 1980 to about 2000, we had tremendous growth with virtually no inflation. We fixed the problem. And... That's the yeah, those are facts. Now you, so you don't give the the Clinton administration any credit for oh no, I do. trying to bring down uh Well, Clinton was a Clinton was a sort of a hybrid. In other yeah, words, he was a hybrid. Clinton comes in Clinton's southern dem I mean, I know Bill Clinton was a liberal. He was a McGovernite. I was a McCarthyite and we were both against the war and that's how we met years and years and years and years ago. But you know, Bill was a uh, 
moderate governor from the South. And it's funny, he ran as a liberal. And he was governor, and he was a liberal, and then he lost, and he came back to serve a couple more terms as a conservative. He did the same thing in the White House. He starts out in 1993, raises the top income tax. Right. And then his wife tries to nationalize health care. And they got slaughtered in the midterm elections. They did, but they clearly uh, you know, helped address debt and deficit with the, the top rate tax increases, and it didn't crush growth. We wound up with uh, quite a nice run through the, through the 90s. Well, I would say, first of all, I'd say yes. And second of all, I would say, remember, a little bit of history. Uh, Bill Clinton raised the top income tax rate from... Uh, in round numbers, 31 to, to, to 39, I think. However, he came back in the second term and he lowered the capital gains tax by eight percentage points and ran on it in 96. Everybody knew it was coming. That's a big growth booster. Mm-hmm. So the question is, was he a taxer or not? Mm-hmm. Well, I think he started out as a taxer and then he really became a supply sider. Mm-hmm. And I also give Clinton a lot of credit for finishing Reagan's um, NAFTA. Reagan negotiated NAFTA with Canada, and then Clinton and Gore, to their credit, fought protectionist pressures from Ross Perot and others and signed the second leg with Mexico. It was not not perfect, but see, free trade is a big pro-growth thing in our model, and cutting the investment tax rate like capital gains. That's a big thing in our model. So I'd say he was, you know, pretty much kind of a two-thirds supply sider. That's the way I would answer that. Yeah. Uh, well, we can get into And as far as bit, debt yeah. and debt goes, yeah. debt, deficit debt, look, you look at the whole, whole long run here. Sure, in the short run, most tax cuts will create a deficit. But I would say that's borrowing money for good investment. Don't worry about the short-run effects. The incentives are what you worry about. At the margin, the last hour worked, the last dollar invested should be a greater reward to spur more. All right? We want to reward success. This is the incentive model of growth. Democrats, um, first of all, Democrats tragically have forgotten the JFK legacy. Really? I mean, that's part of our book. Yeah. And second of all, the Democratic Party now has become a class warfare party. They have no economic growth plans except the Obama model, which was a trillion dollars of spending, and it didn't work. And I always say to my friends, and, and really, I've cut a report. We had all the Democrats on, good guys, Austin Goldsby, sure. Jason Furman, and Jared Bridges. I'd say, look, fellas, you had your way with Obama, and you chose a New Deal model of big spending to stimulate the economy back into recovery. Which they did. I mean, we got economic growth again. We got, um, you know, 4% unemployment. And, and granted, obviously, we don't have the wage growth that we want. Uh, we don't have the uh, pace of growth that we want. But I think you probably have to give them some credit for coming back from the abyss and I don't. stabilizing things. I, because from the abyss, they should have grown the economy 8% a year. That's the history. Which you think they could have done by slashing tax rates. Well, what I want to add to it is um, they chose a big spending model. Their estimates of growth were 4% a year. 
Go back and look at their early yeah, budgets. Yeah, no, I remember them. And we got one to two, okay? That's a failure. Coming out of a deep recession, they should have had eight, nine. Laffer would say they should have had, you know, And And 10%. you don't think that recession was different given the, you know, financial crisis that we had and the freezing up of the banking system that it's not fair to apply traditional recession recovery metrics to that kind of a financial crisis. No, I think it's, I think a bad slump is a bad slump. By the way, we have financial collapses. We have financial collapse. Don't forget from the savings and loan industry. um, We've had financial collapses as long as the Republic has been around. So this idea that it's just limited to finance, no, I don't buy that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, but but again, we'll run this experiment, right? We have a supply-side experiment under Kennedy and Reagan. And we had demand-side spending experiment under Obama. So I say to those folks, you know, Jason and, and, and uh, Austin, they're so good guys, smart guys. Um, we even agree on some things. But I said, look, you had your chance, and you ran a, a spending model. And it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Now, our guys come back in, and Trump's not pure supply side, but on this subject of taxes, he listened to us. Give us a chance. Just give us a chance. And in three or four years, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We all go back to the drawing board. Mm-hmm. I, get, I get that. But it's our turn. That's all I'm saying. It's you. our turn. But if it doesn't work and you don't get the growth that you're hoping for and expecting, then we've got, you know, higher debt deficits, presumably higher interest rates. Like there's a there's a risk if it doesn't work. That agreed. Yeah. But but by the by, the debt in public hands went from ten to twenty trillion under Obama. Yes. Okay. I mean, that's a fact. We also had a giant recession that dried up tax receipts. Hell I mean, yeah! Guess what? <laughs> right. That's precisely right. So. We never really had a, in my opinion, we never had a recovery. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm just saying. This is the shot at getting that recovery right. by doing it a different Let's way. Let's apply the okay. same metrics to both guys. Yeah. I mean, I'm always interested when friends of mine on the Democratic side say, your tax cuts are going to balloon the budget deficit. And I sort of sit back and say, well, what's 10 to 20 trillion? What, that, what happened there? Right. It's already been ballooned. So you're saying we should balloon it some more? I would say this. No, because I think in the, in the longer term, deficits could come way down. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying give us a chance. Okay. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Larry Kudlow. But first, a word from our sponsor. A message from Morgan Stanley. By 2050, there may be 1 billion electric vehicles on the road worldwide, or up to 90% of all vehicle sales. This dramatic shift would bring opportunities and challenges to automakers and the supply chain. Already, automakers have pulled forward plans to aggressively introduce electric vehicles over the next three to five years versus 20 to 25 years previously. While they currently control much of the value of the car by designing and producing major components, the shift will require greater supplier content than ever before. Read more at morganstanley.com slash electric. Morgan Stanley & Co., LLC, member SIPC. 
Uh, let's talk a little bit about your relationship with uh, with President Trump, who yeah. you knew before uh, he ran for president yes. in New York circles, obviously, uh, social circles in New York. You got to know him. Um, I want to know about that, uh, how you got to know him, what your relationship is like now. And then I want to ask you a, a couple of things about the troubling stuff that he said and done and how mm-hmm. you deal with it. But mm-hmm. talk to me about your relationship to him. Well, I did know um, Donald Trump superficially, socially. I'm not an intimate of his, but sure, I'd see him around. And uh, also, Ben, I interviewed him a lot. I interviewed him on TV and radio a whole bunch of times. And you, you know, like this, sitting right across from him. So you get to know somebody. Um, and I liked him, by the way. I've always liked him. And he he became iconic in New York, the, the famous uh, Central Park skating rink. You know, or the city, of the Walnut skating was a disrepair. Was disrepair. It didn't work. The city kept saying, we're going to do this. They never did. Trump came in and fixed it in about, I don't know, three months, six months. And uh, he did change, by the way, a lot of architecture critics. He changed the skyline of New York mm-hmm. City. Mm-hmm. And he really did. And I give him a lot of credit for that. Mm-hmm. But um, I was never certain about his political opinions. We would go back and forth, and I would ask him questions and so forth. Um, didn't really think he was going to run for president, and but he did. So that's how I got to know him. Mm-hmm. And you know, when the, he, the did, amusing part of the yeah. story is, though, when Trump put a Wall Street Journal op-ed in, on taxes, and I really liked it. So, a heavy emphasis on business tax cuts for for the right reasons. Okay, and I read it. This was in um, I think the autumn of 2015. I liked it, and I said I liked it on the air several times. So later that year, I believe it was the CNBC debate. John Harwood, one of our reporters, blasting Trump and all this stuff. And Trump goes out and says, well, respected economist Larry Kudlow supports my tax cut plan. I bet Harwood was really sold on uh, on that. He said, oh, well, then it's got to be great, right? <laughs> and then came back after him and Trump said, well, don't blame me. It's Larry Kudlow who supports this. <laughs> okay. And that's really – and then he repeated that many times in different places. Mm-hmm. And I don't, he and I don't think it talked uh, about presidential stuff. Mm-hmm. Then eventually, I he kept using, it and I said I called in and said, "Don't you think it's time we had a sit down?" Right, and he said, "Yes." So you did that. We did that, and I brought my buddy Steve Moore sure. in, um, and we had great talks with Trump in his, uh, you know, in the Trump Tower office, and he basically said. Um, you know, he said, I like you guys a lot. I've seen you on TV and this and that. And, you know, go on ahead and flesh out a, a, a whole package for me. Right. And so we did. And so you did. And you worked with the campaign on the tax plan yes. and then some with the White House yes. uh, as they've, they've rolled it out. What is your uh, kind of relationship to him now and to other people in the White House? How often do you talk to them? How often do you visit the White House? Uh, what is your interaction like with uh, well, Trump good. and the West Wing? Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, I've seen him a couple times. I've spent a lot of time in the West Wing at, at their invitation. Um, Steven Mnuchin's a friend. Gary Cohn's a friend. Gary, first of all, everyone was yelling at Gary Cohn because he's a Democrat. Well, so I'm a former Democrat. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the idea of putting a Democrat mm-hmm. in there as long as he was the right kind of Democrat. <laughs> 
the, uh, the pro-tax cut kind of Democrat. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah. And the JFK model. Mm-hmm. Okay. And actually had Gary, I don't know, one time I just blurted out, so would you come on my radio show? Right. And he did. He was great. And he insisted on coming on the set of the mm-hmm. radio show, mm-hmm. which you don't have to do. And um, later on, somebody said he really enjoyed it. He was very effective, I might add, mm-hmm. uh, as Mnuchin's been great on radio and TV. But... Um, he had never been in a radio studio. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> and he really got a kick out of it. Yeah. So, and I'm, you know, Kevin Hassett's been a dear friend sure. for 20 years. So, yeah, we're we're there. Um, I don't badger, but I weigh in when I think we do. Uh, Mike Pence is an old friend mm-hmm. and uh, and so forth. Steve Moore and I, we, you know, we've been, we've, we were with Pence. Actually, Art Laffer was with with anyway right. the relationship is quite good right, right. Now. and you've got a lot of uh, people inside the administration you've known for a long time yeah um i wonder and this is a problem for a lot of people who like a lot of trump's program particularly on taxes and, and doing tax cuts and uh, fewer regulations who are frustrated by some of the things he says and does and tweets uh and lately in the news, obviously, is Roy Moore in Alabama running for Senate, who is credibly accused by numerous um, women of improper uh, sexual behavior uh, when they were teenagers. Trump has basically gone all in for Roy Moore. Uh, and, you know, he said yesterday in an event with Native Americans, he referred to Senator Elizabeth Warren as Pocahontas, um, which is, you know, just sort of unbelievable that he would do that in that context. Uh, there was the white supremacist march in Virginia where he said both sides were uh, at fault before trying to clean that up. Um, how do you square like some of this stuff that Trump says and does with your support for his policies? Well, look, um, <clears throat> I've worked for one president. I've advised several others. I was very close to George W. Bush, for example. And they are who they are. You know, I'm, I'm not a political guy, policy guy. I accept whether I like it or not. President Trump says what he says, okay? Uh, I myself um, wouldn't go near more. Maybe I'm giving him the wrong rap, okay? I mean, there is an issue here about allegations versus proof. There are a lot of allegations from a lot of people who have no reason to lie uh, and whose stories have been corroborated by others. Yeah, I, well, I have a problem with more. I mean, I'm, yeah. don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, I have a big problem with more. And... Trump is right politically, I suppose, that you might elect this other guy, Jones, who would be against uh, Trump's policies. But I, look, Trump's the president. I'm, you know, a broadcaster, whatever I am. And I wouldn't go near him more. That's just me. I wouldn't go near him. Um, other things, you know, during the campaign, he says things his own way. It's not necessarily the way, but I'm not running for president. And in fact, I'm not the president. Mm. So I spend my time principally helping out on taxes and growth and regulations and so forth and, and trade. Trade is going to be a big issue. He doesn't call. He won't call me for a lot of these other matters. He has other advisors, and I may agree or disagree. Um, I would say um, if I was as a 12-stepper myself, all these years later, acceptance is the yeah. answer to all my problems. Um, and obviously, I mean, we're at a point in this country where we've got a huge opioid addiction right. problem. Um, and a lot of people who need help and could benefit from 
12 step recovery. I, I just wonder, you know, quickly kind of Trump has talked about this and declared a national emergency on, on opioids. Do you give that a lot of thought? Like what could be done differently or better uh, on the part of, you know, either the federal government or the healthcare system to uh, kind of take a real crack at this opioid problem? Yeah, it's a huge problem. Um, one thing about President Trump, as you may know, his brother died from alcoholism. I do, yeah. That's a big impact on him. Clearly. And so I think he's quite sincere about the opioid crisis. On the other hand, Ben, I, um, I'm not knocking the medical profession. That's not my intent. And, you know, in the 12-step program, we need all the help we could get. That's always been part of the creed. But I, I think that you have to learn to change yourself with the help of others you have to have a certain faith. Uh, it's not a religious program. It's a spiritual program. It's about changing your behavior or yourself. You cannot do that alone. So you, you know, yeah. you, you go to meetings, you have sponsors, never far away. You know, I may miss a meeting or two because I'm on the road, but I'm calling my buddies, yep, me telling them how crazy I feel. <laughs> Same. And... and um, I, I'm not sure the opioid thing that's going on in the federal government gives enough um, attention mm -hmm. to what I'll just call the spiritual side or the yeah. faith side. Mm -hmm. um, I have spoken to Chris Christie about this, and on this subject, I think he's a pretty remarkable man. He understands a lot mm -hmm. from his own experiences with friends, but I haven't. I just did a thing up in Connecticut to talk about this. And then I had a couple doctors on my panel, and you know their solution. I mean, there's this outburst of phenytoin and yeah. all these opiates. It's all basically heroin or yeah. synthetic or heroin. derivatives of heroin that are much more powerful than that's heroin. right. That's exactly right. And I was so disappointed because so much of their answer is methadone. Yeah, I'm not against methadone, sure, but I'm just saying to cure a disease. With a with equal, lesser version of the disease. Yeah, yeah. What it just troubled me that that's where they were going. Now, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a reverend. I'm yep. not a rabbi or anything like that. I mean, I'm a good Catholic, is what I am. I work hard at it. But there has to be um, a, a, a spiritual, faith based, behavioral. You know, my, my saintly wife often echoes. I mean, she, I went to Hazleton, but she was, you know, got the program. Sure. Um, it's about self. Yep. You know, if we're not willing to change ourselves, mm -hmm. and a, a friend of mine, a former sponsor of mine used to always say this, if you have a drunken horse thief who stops drinking. Still a horse thief. There's still a horse thief. <laughs> you yep. got to change that. It's an inside job, right? I mean, that's <laughs> yes, what we is. always say, yeah. um, that it's about changing and that, your You know, that guides yourself. me. I ain't perfect, Lord knows, but I think... In terms of my broadcasting persona, people know me as fairly level-headed. Yeah. I've had a few I'd like to have back. I <laughs> as all of us have. Yeah, but I'm fairly level-headed, and I learned that from the from the twelve-step rooms. And um, you know, hate the sin, but love the sinner. That's kind of my creed. And you know, I'm grateful. I yeah. am a very grateful person. Yeah, so am I. Um, I appreciate you talking to me about that. I want to do a few other things before we go because I know you got to get to a flight and you've got a thing in, in West Palm Beach. Um, 
But we, we touched on trade, and I do want to talk about that because the president is very uh, different from you and from Gary Cohn uh, and some other people in the administration on that in that he's not a dedicated free trader, although he will say he wants better trade bills, uh, better trade deals, although it's never quite clear to me exactly what he means by that. But let's just talk about NAFTA, uh, for instance. And if he were to, as some people worry, unilaterally pull out of NAFTA sometime in the next few months, that would strike me as a bad thing to do. It would be bad for the economy. I would agree with you and would have to say so publicly. I've already talked about this on the air um, because NAFTA decisions are coming after the tax uh, uh, business is complete. So if he unilaterally pulls out, I think you're going to have tremendous disturbance in business, tremendous disturbance. I think the stock market will uh, hemorrhage and – People, let me just say, and I've made this case to the president. He's heard it. I think I've gotten through. I think he agrees with me in some part, but I have not convinced him of yeah. the free trade position. Now, I'll say this changes in NAFTA after 20 some years. Sure, of course. Right. That's fine. Exactly right. But even if you argue it's a negotiating tactic, the art of the deal, pulling out is send the wrong message. Yeah. Just send the wrong message. Look, you couldn't stop the trading in the Northern Hemisphere now if you wanted to. Right. It's totally ingrained in the it. system. And all these industries would be affected. I, I, you know, I hope the president is, is being well briefed on how many industries would be negatively affected because yes. there's a lot of them. Yeah. And... Um, there's. I just saw another story uh, about flat screens that mm-hmm. are all made in Mexico, yeah. but then they come into the U.S. for the final processing. Sure. This is the integrated supply chain that we're talking about that exactly. would be completely disrupted. You're and you, correct. You just can't do it. You're uh, correct. And without would, having a huge economic dislocation. You're right. Yeah. It's got a big shock. And but there are political advisors around him who want him to do it as a symbolic measure of America first, uh, following through on campaign pledges. And this is, you know the Stephen Millers of the world, and frankly, now he's on the outside, but the Steve Bannons of the world who have the president's ear, and he does feel like he needs to service that America Wilbur, first base. My dear personal and friend, Wilbur Ross. Wilbur Ross, who's a dear personal friend of sure. ours. Our families are, but he's the same way. My old buddy, Pete Navarro, who I used to have on the Cuddle Report, same way. And that's, I'm worried about that. Yeah. Very worried about that. And my discussions with them have been unsatisfactory. And, um, so far, the president's campaign bark has been bigger than his governmental bite. So far, right. so that's good. Um, on the other hand, this story could go south. Um, uh, Steve Bannon's a friend of mine, but we utterly, completely disagree on the matter of trade. Now, Trump does know that sort of a, we were going to Detroit for the Economics Club speech in the summer of 16. And uh, we were on the, Steve, Steve Moore and I were on the plane. And we were doing stuff at the last minute. That's the way it works. I asked him just, I said, would you consider putting a line in that extols the benefits of free trade? And he did. Mm. He did. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a sentence. But it was an important one. So I think he's uh, understands and he himself and his businesses, right, did a lot of trading sure. overseas. So I'm hoping that better heads prevail and that key changes are made 
there's a lot of tax imbalances at the border and so forth. Sure. But I worry about this yeah. a lot. This could be – look, in, in the supply model, you know, we talk about sound money to hold down inflation. We talk about lower tax rate incentives to promote economic growth. Well, trade is a part of the low tax rate incentives. Mm-hmm. Trade is taxes. Tariffs are taxes. Yep. In the 19th century, the Democratic Party were the low taxers. Yeah. Pre-income tax. Yep. Brian Dimitrovic and I wrote a couple op-eds about this. It's in the book. And uh, then it all turns. It all turns. And um, and we have experience with what happens when you put tariffs on right. people. Uh, what, and you create up trade price. wars and right. you jack up prices for people. Prices. Right. And there you get less growth. And, and, and even... You know, it's like producers versus consumers. You say, well, the producers benefit and the consumers get hurt. Actually, that's not even true. Only certain producers get out. Right. Right. It, and most producers who use these imports, right, right they don't get help. They no. get hurt. Right. And then they pass the cost along to consumers. Yeah. And then the businesses dry up and the wages decline and the jobs go away. It's a good prescription for recession, uh, sure basically, is. if you want to um, slap sure a bunch is. of import tariffs on people. Um, and here's the other point, which I have made, President. Trade deficits are a very poor indicator of the health of the economy. Exactly, right? which he doesn't seem to believe. I know. I can't. You're right. By the way, I've never made the sale. I Absolutely, you're right. Um, one of my favorites on this subject is Greg Mankiw, uh, who was... Uh, Republican, mm-hmm. I don't even, Greg is who he is, chairman of the Harvard Economics yeah. Department and so forth. He worked for George W. Bush. He has written so many great pieces on this. Uh, the, you know, why misunderstanding is, the trade misunderstanding, deficits. Misunderstanding, trade deficits. And Greg, by the way, is 100% behind these business tax cuts. Sure. But, and agrees it will. But I'm just saying, distinguish people like that. Yes. Um, and I'll go to the other side. Larry Summers, mm-hmm. I, I presume, still opposes tariffs he does and, so and he forth. opposes the uh unilateral pullout of nafta uh right argues for the right. long-term economic benefits of it uh, makes right. the same case that there are obvious uh, pieces that could be updated and changed uh but that pulling out of it would be disastrous disaster yeah and so we will see but this is something that troubles me a lot look i will i've held these views for three or four decades yeah i'm not gonna change them now No, of course of course Let's, i'll do it politely yeah. but i'm gonna make my case that if the president chooses to pull out an after he's made a very significant i mistake. also think if he were to do that there would be certain members of the administration who uh disagree with that uh approach who might no longer be members of the administration because they would be really I think, um, upset by it and fear that it would totally undermine the stimulative uh, piece of the uh, administration's economic proposals, which are the tax cuts. If you do these corporate tax cuts, and let's say you get some good growth out of them, and then at the same time destroy NAFTA or pull out of the Korean trade deal, you'll offset that with um, higher tariffs and costs. Yes, uh, yes to all that. Um, one of the, one of the things I've tried to explain, President, and some of his fo- senior folks, is that look. Slashing corporate tax rates and expensing and repatriation, all the building blocks of the business tax cut side, which I think will really stimulate growth. You don't have to worry about all these micro-trade arguments because we'll be so powerful. We'll be such a great magnet for investment. They're going to come here, you know, and therefore... If they want to engage in protectionism, they will hurt their own people, right? 
and we just go and help our folks by liberalizing the entire internal American economy. Now, he does see that. President Trump, he's acknowledged that. He said it publicly. But somehow this deficit thing mm-hmm. has become a, sort of a mental obstacle. Right. And I, he thinks it just means we're getting beaten by yeah, other countries, which yeah. it doesn't mean. But the other point is, Capital, look, as Mankiw has argued, I love Mankiw's work because he's so straight and easy to understand. Trade deficits are the flip side of capital inflows. Precisely. And I'd rather have the money. Sure. I'd rather have the capital. Yeah. And then they'll build here in the U.S. So I don't don't fret about trade deficits. Yeah, Yeah. nor do I. I mean, if they break the rules, that's different. China stealing our intellectual property rights has to be fixed. That I agree with 100%. Right. Um, let's hit a, a few things. I want to ask you this because I'm going to double dip because I'm writing a story on this topic and uh, I want your thoughts on it. And that is this idea that if we slash the corporate tax rate from 35 to 20, uh, that you are necessarily going to get corporate America, corporate executives feeling bullish and hiring people and paying more wages. Um, not a guarantee that any of that's going to happen, particularly given that they you know, the cost of capital is already very low. There's a lot of cash on balance sheets of corporate America. So why are they all of a sudden going to have more cash and then say, okay, now's the time we raise wages and hire more people and build more plants? Well, I think, though, that's only partly uh, correct, Ben, because the interest rate cost of capital is very low. The tax cost of capital is extremely high. That's a big barrier. That's why they're all moving overseas. Um, I, I don't know this. I can't absolutely confirm this number, but Kevin Hassett, who's this trade shooter, he says there's 700 American companies registered in Ireland. What does that tell you? So I'm just saying, the, the look, what you're doing here, I guess, fundamentally, is you're lowering the tax cost of capital. That's huge. Huge. Much more important, by the way, than the interest rate cost of capital. Um, so that's one point. The second point is, it's not just the um, uh, beneficence of the individual CEO who will pay his workers more. It's the grand scale. It's the macro view that we will generate, if this thing works, we will generate an investment boom because the cost of investment will go down and the reward for investment, the return on investment will go up. Okay, and in that process, you build capital, you build plants, factories, and whatever. The demand for labor goes up, and whether the CEO wants to or not, is going to be forced to pay higher wages. That's it's it's not it's not that the it's not that the head of the you know company X is big hearted. It's a it's an economic principle. If the overall see we it's a funny thing about this wage business. Not only have profits moved offshore, but really um, the participation rate for labor is very low, especially compared to prior recoveries. And that's, I think, a function of many things, but people don't want to work. The government is, in some cases, providing incentives for them not to work. Mm. But also the demand for labor, the demand for high-skilled labor should be much stronger than it has been. Mm-hmm. And that, by the way, is not only a tax question. You could go into yeah, education and training there, and yeah. things of that sort, which are important. But I'm just saying, why not? This is a basic concept. 
economic principle. You lower the cost and raise the return, you're going to change behavior. That's what we're doing with investment. The other thing is, I have this argument all the time. It's so funny. I just had it. We were at dinner with some people. Oh, they're just going to use it to buy Dividend back shares. Yeah. All right? And you know, my, so what? Mm-hmm. Why is that bad? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, bad because you're putting money in the pockets of shareholders rather than higher wages. But what are they going to do with it? Yeah. Well, you're either going to spend it, presumably. Okay. But what if they just save it? That's fine. That, why, is, why is that fine? If it's not going to work, it's be, going into... Because saving equals investment. Hmm. That's a really important point, but saving is investment. We need more saving. We need more investment. By the way, one of the reasons for our trade deficit is because we don't save enough. That's standard economic stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you buy, I, by the way, want, I think paying higher dividends is great, but whatever. You're taking money from the, this is like Al Gore's lockbox. You're taking money from the corporate lockbox and transferring it back to the individual's who own the place, the individual's not going to put that money in a mattress. It's going to, if it goes into a bank or a mutual fund or a private equity firm or whatever, it's recirculated through the economy for investment purposes. Mm-hmm. I love saving. <laughs> What's wrong with saving? The Keynesians have always misunderstood mm-hmm. the saving argument. Mm-hmm. They have. Mm-hmm. I love saving. You know why? The money circulates. We have very sophisticated financial system circulates right, as opposed to sitting on a, a corporate balance sheet or uh, under a mattress or under a mattress this is not 1932 thank yeah, heavens yeah god you see, willing they, it won't become i make that. this case this yeah. is a case this is just they said this about uh, bushy when he had his very short-lived uh repatriate oh the money was all share back so, so what uh, right and the you lower the low co- view that's not a bad thing right yeah fine even though it's a Argument that will be trotted out by Democrats every time you say you want a corporate. Yeah, he's yawning. Okay. Now, I, I also read in this uh, Vanity Fair thing that people call you Cuddles sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Where did yes. that come from? I don't know exactly. My father was called Cuddles. Oh, yeah. Um, or maybe it's just because you're a nice, friendly guy. I just, it's Cuddlo, Cuddles. Yeah. I'm not a bad guy. I'm yeah. along with people. Yeah. Uh, sure. That's fine. Um, you used to really call me Cuddles, and the government was great. Craig Roberts, Paul Craig Roberts. Oh, yeah. And um, uh, he and I have had our jousting, but mm-hmm. um, you know we became over time quite friendly. He used to always call me Cuddles, and mm-hmm. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, I it's a nice confess. nickname. I, I like I it too. It. All right, so Cuddles. Um, <laughs> big question hanging over this administration now is: All right, let's say they get tax cuts done, some form of the tax cut plan. There's you know a lot of drama to play out between now and then, but what's next? For them, um, you've talked. Paul Ryan has talked about welfare reform. I, I don't know what exactly he means by that, but maybe you're thinking about incentives that the government gives people not to work, and maybe, maybe they focus on that. Uh, there's obviously the infrastructure question, which Trump talked about all the time on the campaign trail, but they don't seem any closer to an actual bill on that. Although it's a favorite topic of of Gary Cohn's, I'm not sure that they're in a position to move on infrastructure anytime soon. So, what should they do next? Well. First thing I'd say is solve trade in a constructive pro-growth manner. Secondly, um, the president is is interested in welfare reform um, because a lot of economists in both sides of the aisle have said, you know, we're I don't like to say we're paying people not to work, but at the margin, the incentives you've had such growth in the small entitlements. I don't mean Social Security and healthcare. You had growth in healthcare, but 
what we used to call welfare food stamps, disability. Um, they've taken the eligibility requirements out, so able-bodied folks are not working. That needs to be changed. That would be a big, big change. And I think Trump's quite interested in that, actually. Um, and I think he's quite interested in infrastructure. So you've got health care is still out there. You've got uh, trade. You've got welfare reform. And you've got infrastructure. Um, you may come back and visit. Now, look, Trump is a very uh, parsimonious president when it comes to federal spending. Mm. Except on defense. Right. That's correct. But I think he, you know, one of the things lost in this discussion is the Mick Mulvaney budget, which was very tough. Yeah. So yeah. I think they're going to revisit that. I just too. wonder, like, can he really go from cutting taxes on corporations and if they do the individual side, getting rid of the state tax and the alternative minimum tax, which, you know, we can have all the arguments about rich people you want. They benefit rich people for the most part. Um, all the numbers show that. Uh, to cutting back on entitlement programs for people who are on food stamps or or any of the other things. I mean, isn't that just like tailor-made for Democrats in 2018 to say, this guy's given tax cuts to the rich and taking away benefits from the poor. You know, let's throw Republicans out of every office in the land. Like, well, that's can, what, can you really do that? That's what they will try, and that's why they will lose. It's precisely that message that will lose the next election. In fact... If the tax cuts get done and the economy expands, they're going to lose. The Republicans are going to pick up seats in 2018. Do you think it'll be in the system fast enough for that to happen? Yeah, I do. You do? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of money around, and um, both large and small companies are just itching to pull the trigger. Mm. They just want to see what the law is going to be. Mm -hmm. Very important. Um, they won't. That's why this Senate idea of postponing till 2019 is a very bad idea. However, uh, Ben, I will say this. The biggest, I, I believe this, the biggest beneficiaries of the business tax cuts are going to be middle-income wage earners. And mainstream economists basically agree with that. Now, you may disagree about the magnitude. Yeah, the extent to which they'll benefit. That's correct. But really, I mean, Larry Kotlikoff of Boston University sure has a whole model on this, and he's no, you know. He's no. no. I mean, everybody assigns some it. benefit to average workers so, from and corporate they need tax to rates, sell but that. there are big divisions in the percentages that people assign. Maybe so, that. but the fundamental point is yeah. important. Yeah. And I'm just saying that, that I believe, and I've argued this to the president every time I see him, keep messaging that. Yeah. Those are the folks that are going to be helped the most. Look, the rich are rich. Yeah. They're not. The wage earner hasn't had really after tax, after inflation, barely increased in uh, you know, average median income since um, 2000. Look yeah. at the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm happy to make that. I love it when the Democrats go class warfare. Mm -hmm. I just love that because that is a sure loser. A sure loser. There you go. All right, Larry Kudlow, we have to leave it there. I know you got to get to the airport. We appreciate you taking the time with us so much. And uh, thanks for joining the Political Money Podcast. Great to have you. Thanks, Ben. You're really my journalistic hero. <laughs> Thank you, sir. You're my. <laughs> and that's a wrap for this week's edition of the Politico Money Podcast. Thanks so much to Larry Kudlow for joining us. Thanks to my producer, Bridget Mulcahy. And please do, if you're enjoying Politico Money, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Write us a review and rate us with your stars. And we'll be back with you next week.